I just want to say thank you to all of those who have helped carry the church along on its path over the last several weeks. Uh, Saturday after Thanksgiving, I tested positive for COVID, and I reached out to several guys and said, guys, uh, I can't be at church tomorrow morning. I know this is the last minute on a holiday weekend. Can anybody fill in? And by the grace of God, uh, Mike jumped in right away. And then uh, the following week, Jonathan carried us very faithfully by preaching for us on the line. Um, and not only that, we've had people come to film, like Ben and Gene. We've had people put things online, like Larry and Dan Herman. We have been so immensely blessed to see the way God has sustained us and carried us through a really kind of tough time here at the church. So uh, I just want to say thank you to all of you who are behind the scenes doing lots of work. Uh, Gideon carrying a lot of the administrative load while we were, uh, Ashley and I, just in bed for a couple of weeks doing nothing. Um, thank you so much for everybody who's carried us along and who has served. I know so many of you have taken meals to those who are sick. What a blessing this church has been. So please continue to serve those who, like uh, Jordan said, you look around, you notice there's a few people still not here. <clears throat> At this time, I'd like to ask that you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 67 today. Due to the recent shakeup in our church, I determined to take a little bit of time this Christmas to preach through the four songs found in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Now, technically, these words were not officially songs in every case. For example, Mary and Zechariah were not singing these songs. They were actually poetic prophecies that were uttered by the lips of these individuals who had been blessed by the Lord. However, very early in the church, these prophetic poems were made into songs, and we have continued to sing them to this very day. Some people, men in particular, seem to often look down on or scoff at poetry. Have you ever known anybody who just thinks that poetry is not very manly? Yeah, there's a few. I would have to say I vehemently disagree. For example, King David, clearly one of the manliest men in all time, uh, this guy, David, also wrote the most poetry that has been recorded for us in the Bible. Not only that, his poetry, his poems have been more quoted, more sung than anyone else's without comparison. His legacy with the sword is far surpassed by his legacy with the pen. And besides that, those same people who look down on poetry would probably be clicking the volume up in their headphones if that same poetry had been turned into music and added a nice melody. Poetry is this incredible gift of God. It's this crazy, amazing gift where we just take words and arrange them in a particular way, and those words elicit from us incredible amounts of attention and emotion. Consider some of the poetic truths that we already sang together this morning. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Does that not strike a fire in your heart? Or what of those words we just sang? Humbly he lay, creator come as creature, born on the floor of a hay-scattered stall. True son of God, yet bearing human feature, he entered earth to reverse Adam's fall. In towering grace he laid aside his glory, and in our place was sacrificed for sin. Fall on your knees, O oh, hear the gospel story, O oh, night divine. O night when Christ was born. 
This is rich, Christ-centered poetry, or as Shailen often calls it, lyrical theology. When we take such gospel-saturated poetry and we sing it together as a body, every muscle in our bodies is joining together with our emotions to announce God is good. Glory be to God. Last week, we were unable to gather together in person, but in the sermon that was recorded, recorded, we considered the song of Mary as she magnified the Lord and rejoiced in God, her Savior. This morning, we're going to consider another song. It's the song of Zechariah, which is often referred to by theologians as the Benedictus. Now, just to let you know, theologians are terrible at naming things. They have no creativity. So the reason it's called the Benedictus and the reason the Magnificat is called the Magnificat in all four of these songs, actually, have the first word in Latin is what they are called. So the first word in this song in Latin is the word Benedictus, which is where it gets its name. As you'll see this morning, this song has many parallels to Mary's song. It's almost as if Mary's singing the melody and then Zechariah comes in with the harmony in this song. So please follow along now as I read these magnificent lyrics of Zechariah starting in Luke chapter 1 verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Please join me as we pray. Father God, we are grateful that you have given us this song to explore and understand this morning. And Lord, we are acknowledging right now that we can't understand it apart from the work of your Holy Spirit enlivening our hearts and our minds. So God, we pray that today you would open our understanding. Lord, we bow our hearts before you and we ask, Lord, that today you would give us great joy May this season of Christmas celebration truly be about you in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the person singing this song is Zechariah. Who exactly is that guy and why is he singing? Now in order to understand that, we need to actually rewind this story about nine months. And earlier in this chapter, we find our introduction to Zechariah and his wife. We're told that they are an elderly couple and that they are upright people who honor the Lord. We also learn that Zechariah is a temple worker from the tribe of Levi. But we learn that these two have never been able to have a child. Zechariah is a temple priest who was chosen for a once-in-a-lifetime honor to go and light the incense and pray for people during the hour of prayer. Now, just a side note here, there are thousands upon thousands 
of Levites. And so when I say once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, quite literally, I mean once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And to be honest, most of the time, from some historians and theologians, they believe that they would often select people that they believed were close to the end of their lives because this is the last shot they're going to get. So this man, Zechariah, is probably not just an elderly man. He is probably an old man. And they say this is the last year he's going to be able to come here and travel to this place to be able to pray and light the incense before the Lord. So he comes in and he prays for an hour for the people. You could pray a lot of things in an hour. We don't know everything that he was praying about, but surely he was praying for the nation. And we know that he also prayed for a child because an angel appears in the room and tells him that his prayer for a child is going to be answered. Just If you're in your Bibles in Luke chapter 1, just go up on the page just a little higher and see what the angel said to him, starting in verse 13. He said, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Now, Zechariah doubted the words of the angel, and he questioned how such a thing like this could come to to pass. Why? Because he and his wife are old. Apparently, he didn't read the Old Testament very well because this has happened before. The angel confirms that his message is true and that it's from the Lord, and then he disciplines Zechariah for his unbelief. And in verse 20, he says, You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, flash forward at least nine months. Elizabeth gives birth to a little baby boy. And now, these these people, they lived in a small country village, a small community. And these villages were very tight-knit. And every time a baby was born, it was very significant, and everyone was going to know, and everyone was talking about it. So when a child was born, everyone would come to celebrate the new life that had come into their town. In those days, it was the father's responsibility to name the new baby. But remember, Zechariah can't speak. So they ask Elizabeth, who says the child's name is going to be John. Now immediately, there's an uproar in the room. Look, names, names these days hold very little significance. Nobody knows what names mean most of the time. You just give a child a name that sounds nice that you like most often. People name their child crazy things sometimes. I know you're all looking at me and saying, yes, you do. Uh, did you know that some countries actually have begun outlawing certain names for children because of how wild things have begun to get? For example, in New Zealand, it is now illegal to name your child Lucifer or V8, or Messiah. They also stopped a couple from naming their, ch- their twins Fish and Chips. And perhaps most hilariously, a court determined that a mother could not name her child, her daughter, this is the, the name, the real name that she tried to put on the birth certificate, Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii. Now, as I said, 
People choose all sorts of names for all sorts of reasons. But in those days, it was a dishonor to name a child after anyone that was not in your family. So when Elizabeth said the name was going to be John, the relatives began motioning to Zechariah saying, please stop her, do you see what she's doing? Trying to get him to rename the child. Now it's interesting that they're motioning to him with their hands. The text literally says they were making signs to him like they were speaking sign language. And I'm not sure if that means that Zechariah had also lost his hearing when the angel disciplined him or if they just assumed since he can't talk, maybe he can't hear. So he was given a writing tablet And he wrote the definitive words, his name is John. Now the scripture teaches us that at this moment, his tongue was finally loosed and he was once again able to speak. And the doubt that has been shown in his past is now absolutely destroyed. And he names the child exactly what the angel said to name him. And we see his faith displayed and he receives the reward of his voice back. And what does he do? The very first thing out of his mouth are the words we heard today in Zechariah's song. So now that we arrive at the song, we remember that Zechariah has been unable to speak for nine months. He's had a long time to think about what his words will be. And I'm not sure if he wrote this song in silence as he has waited and watched his wife's belly get bigger and bigger, or if the Lord simply gave him these words in that very moment. We don't know, but either way, we know that these words are divinely inspired because verse 67 tells us Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. So we're going to examine the Holy Spirit-inspired lyrics here, and we're going to do that by considering four truths presented to us in this Christmas hymn, the Benedictus. The first truth that we're going to consider is that this song is actually not really about John at all. In Hebrew poetry, the first line of the song is the one that tells you what the rest is all going to be about. Zechariah starts by saying, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people.'" Now, I think this would have been an amazing sight. Now, I'm imagining this old man cradling a baby in his arms and looking at his little fat cheeks, and as he's looking at this child, this child that he's wanted desperately for his whole married life, it's normal for a father then to look at the baby, and in those days, to speak a blessing over the child. But here's the surprising part. This excited father, who finally is holding this child in his arms in his old age, doesn't even mention his own son until two-thirds of the way through the song. The first two-thirds are actually all about Jesus. Zechariah is noting that God is on the move. Blessed be God, the Lord God of Israel. This is spectacular. What you're going to see throughout the song is that he is going to speak in past tense about the things that God is accomplishing in the lives of Jesus and John the Baptist. Brothers and sisters, visitors and guests, there is much for us to celebrate this season. We can rejoice in so many things, in the the love that we have with our family members. We can celebrate the traditions and create new memories. We can honor God by giving and receiving gifts, but all the lights and the Christmas trees and the gingerbread men and the hot chocolate fades into the background when we set our eyes on the true meaning of Christmas, which is Jesus himself. Zechariah received the gift that he always wanted. Maybe you're thinking about what you want under your tree in a few days. What did he want? He wanted a son. 
But even as he welcomed that baby into the world, he was setting his focus on a better gift, the great gift, the gift that God promised he was going to visit his people and redeem them. That is what he is celebrating in this song. Now, I know it's cliche to say that Jesus is the reason for the season, but don't let your joy in Christmas be distracted by all of the trappings of our cultural celebrations. Let those good gifts point you to the better gift that God sent Christ into the world to save sinners. That Jesus would leave his heavenly throne and come to rescue us. Zechariah got this exactly right. His song proclaims, Blessed be the Lord God. God is worthy of our praise. Regardless of what he does, he is worthy because of who he is. Just based on his goodness and godness, he is worthy to receive every ounce of honor and respect. But Zechariah also includes the very reason that every heart should bow down. Why? Because God himself has chosen to visit us. Shocking. Not only that, he didn't just come in judgment. He didn't come in apathy. He didn't come just to see what it's like. He came to redeem us, to carry our curse and death to reverse so we could be daughters and sons. One simple way to apply this truth is to saturate this season with things that actually point you to Jesus. Sadly, to be honest, Christmas really is the most difficult time of the year to get Christians to think of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with listening to White Christmas or Holly Jolly Christmas, but Santa and Rudolph and Frosty are not going to encourage your soul by pointing you to redemption. It's a wonderful life, and Scrooge's Christmas Carol and the Grinch may all be able to teach you a moral lesson, but they won't set your heart on the gospel. Mariah Carey and Bing Crosby are not interested in pointing you to the cross. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't do or enjoy any of those things, but let your family traditions encircle the word of God. Read aloud the various Christmas accounts as you lead up to that special day of celebration. Listen to Christmas music that's actually about Christ. Let every heart prepare him room this Christmas season. The second truth that we need to consider this morning is that God is faithful. Look again at verses 69 through 73. Zechariah says, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, and he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God is faithful. Zechariah is declaring that all of the Old Testament prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the baby that Mary is carrying. Now you might ask the question, wait a minute, hold on here. How do you know that he's actually not talking about John here? Why are you suggesting that this verse where he speaks about what's coming is actually speaking about a horn raised up? Why is that not John rather than Jesus? Well, the answer is found in verse 69. It says the horn of salvation is in the house of David. That means that the child has to be a descendant of David in the tribe of Judah. But Zechariah, as we saw earlier, is not from the tribe of Judah. He's from the tribe of Levi, meaning Zechariah clearly is not singing about this Levite that he's holding in his arms. He is speaking about one who is coming from Mary and Joseph, Joseph, the ones from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the figure that Zechariah is speaking about here. 
Now, although he's speaking about all of the prophecies and covenants of the Old Testament being fulfilled, he highlights two of them. So let's take a couple of uh, moments here to take a quick look at them. First, he draws from Psalm 132, verse 17, which says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Now, the Messianic prophecy is pointing to the Lord's anointed, or as the New Testament term uses, the Christ. But what does that mean when he talks about a horn? Well, what is a horn? When it's speaking about this, it's talking about the weapon that God has built onto the head of an animal. So when he's talking about a horn, he is talking about what God has created to use as a weapon for heaven's warrior against sin and the devil. He is declaring that he is going to fight on behalf of God's people. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 reiterates this truth, putting it this way. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Merry Christmas. Why did Jesus come to destroy the works of the devil? Jesus did that. His entire life on earth was about establishing the kingdom of heaven and overthrowing the kingdom of darkness. Everywhere he went, you see demons being cast out and people being brought spiritually to life. And that work of building his kingdom continues to this very day. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 describes salvation this way. In other words, if you are here as a believer in Jesus Christ, he is telling you this is your story. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Are you a Christian? What happened? Jesus came and got you and moved you to a new kingdom. If you're a Christian, you were once a resident of Satan's home. You were dwelling in darkness and reveling in it. You loved your sin, but by the grace of God, Jesus was born to fight for you by living for you and dying for you and rising again for you and and ascending for you, and ruling for you right now. At the cross, he purchased you with the high price of his own blood, and he transferred you from that kingdom of darkness and brought you where? Into the kingdom of the beloved son, into his own family. The second fulfillment that Zechariah speaks about in this passage is the covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant that he's speaking about can be found in part in Genesis 17, and we're going to look at a portion of that today, but by no means all of it. You can see part of the covenant starting in chapter 12 of Genesis, and again in 15 of Genesis, and then finalized in 17 of Genesis. If you want to read all of that, that would be a wonderful thing to see all that God is fulfilling in Jesus. But today we're just going to look at a few verses starting at chapter 17, verse 4 which says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you, and to your offspring after you. Now, Zechariah is declaring that this promise of God and his people being united in covenant love, that that's being fulfilled because God has not forgotten his promise to Abraham. At the very heart of God's covenant with Abraham, and indeed every covenant that we find in the Bible, is the Emmanuel principle. What is that? The principle that God is graciously drawing near to us in order to dwell with his people. Abraham's covenant was fulfilled in what? Emmanuel, the person who came to be God with 
us, who would be with us, his people. God always keeps his promises. Now, perhaps you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here and you've heard the story, you know the songs, you have maybe attended church many times, but you have not yet been saved. The Bible teaches that there is a promise you must know about. It teaches us that you were separated from God in your sin and that you've run from him and you have rebelled against him. But the promise I want you to know about today is what the Bible says in Romans 10, 13. The promise which says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I simply want to say to those who do not know Jesus Christ, who have never bowed their heart to him in repentance, consider this God who in love would save sinners like you and me. See that he was born to die so that he is alive today and ruling and reigning as Lord over all. There would be nothing greater this Christmas season, no greater gift that this church could receive than to have someone submit their life to the true Jesus for the very first time. What a joy that would be. The third truth that we're going to glean from Zechariah's song today is that Jesus came to make us righteous and holy. Verses 72 to 75, Zechariah says, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to do what? To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, do you see it? Do you see the goal that's put here in these verses? that we would be able to serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness? The greatest danger in your life is that you are born without righteousness and without holiness. And every day that we live, we pile on sin as we disobey God's commands, and we live in opposition to everything that he has set forth for us in his standards and in violation of his character. Unrighteous people cannot enter heaven. Unholy people cannot survive in the presence of God. Because of our sin, we have reason to fear that God would destroy us. But God is so merciful that he sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might be able to receive freely the gift of righteousness and the gift of holiness and be considered perfect before God so that we no longer have any reason to fear. Zechariah highlights that the Messiah would make possible the entrance into the presence of God without fear of being destroyed? How is it that we can boldly go before the throne of grace? How is it that we can dare pray to God? How is it that we are not struck down when we open our lips before the Father? Jesus came to remove barriers between us and God. Why? Not because of what my hands have done or yours, but by the work of Jesus Christ, I am now seen as righteous and holy. Consider the words of pastor and commentator Phil Riken. He says, although there may be reference here to political liberation as well, something far more glorious is meant in these verses. The wholehearted service of the Lord in complete freedom from the bonds of sin, the bonds of guilt, the bonds of punishment, the curse, Satan, and destruction. We are free. Zechariah is rejoicing that God is making a way for his people to have righteousness applied to them. We, the recipients of that mercy, must celebrate God's goodness. If Zechariah is rejoicing from a distance, looking forward to something he did not live to see at the cross, how much more should we be in awe and contain a heart of worship as we look back at the completed work of Jesus, what he's done for us? Now, the fourth truth that we'll consider this morning is that John's life mission 
was actually to point other people to Jesus. Only now, after blessing the Lord for eight verses, Zechariah finally turns and he blesses his own newborn son. Look with me to verses 76 and following. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's the mission of John? It's clear even from before the time he was born, even at this moment when he is being named. It is amazing that everything you see in these verses still points to Jesus. Zechariah is singing to his own son and telling him that the only thing that really matters in your life is what you do for the Lord. Your entire life's work, your ministry, is to direct the attention and the eyes of other people to Jesus. How is he supposed to do that? He first says, by giving knowledge of salvation to his people, by pointing them to what? That there is forgiveness of sin. John grew up, and he did this. He became the last prophet of the Old Testament era, and he was truly the greatest of the prophets, in my opinion. He was not interested in personal greatness. His entire goal was to show other people the greatness of Jesus. John was foretold in the book of Isaiah as the prophet who would be the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. His very first words revealed in Mark reveal how he understood himself to always be subservient to Christ. He said, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of his life was designed to grab your attention and redirect it to the Savior. As John says toward the end of his life in John 3.30, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Christians in the room, your life calling is the same as John. Your purpose, you were called to live and speak and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the very ends of the earth. We're not here to seek our own honor or our own fame. We're not here to build a legacy for ourselves. We are called to go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded them. This is not something we just do at Christmas time. Don't lose those opportunities, though, like John, to point others to Jesus. He is worthy, and Christmas is an excellent open door for you to begin speaking to others about Jesus, about the love of God that is found in his son who was born that very first Christmas. But evangelism is not seasonal. Be prepared for the Christmas season and be prepared out of Christmas season to give it a reason for the hope that's in you. Like John, may every single day of your life that you have left to breathe point other people to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is worthy. So today... We've heard the song of Zechariah. We've heard the Benedictus. We've examined the lyrics of this great work of prophetic poetry. And we've learned that this song is really just about Jesus. We hear that the mission of Christ was to make us righteous before God. That we might not be condemned. We also learned that just like John, we are to point to Jesus with everything we have in our lives. 
these original Christmas hymns, they are a wealth of wisdom. And I hope that you'll join us here Christmas Eve to hear about the angel's song that was sung on the very first Christmas day. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you for this wonderful song that you gave inspiration to Zechariah to sing when his son John was born. We thank you that there is a greater gift than John. We thank you that you sent Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We pray that all blessings and honor and glory and praise and wisdom and power and might be to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen.